is an European Public Service Union podcast. This podcast episode was recorded prior to the outbreak of the war in Ukraine. Hello and welcome everybody to another edition of Epsu Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Bojan Stanislavski and I'm co-hosting, as usual, this program with Pablo Sanchez, who's Epsu's communication officer. Hello, Pablo. Hello. And now to our main guest, uh, who is Tom Rowley. Uh, he edits Open Democracy's coverage of the post-Soviet space and reports on corporate accountability. He previously translated the collected works of Russian human rights and labor lawyer Stanislav Markelov uh, with Giuliano Vivaldi. And uh, at the University of Cambridge, he conducted doctoral research on Russian and Ukrainian underground publishing in the Soviet Union. Welcome to the program, Tom. Hi, right, thanks for having me. Right, so uh, we uh, are having you because you are an author, uh, you are the author of uh, an article, very interesting article about uh, British Foreign Office um, trying to undermine uh, the uh, labor uh, code, labor rights in Ukraine. Let me just uh, quote a few paragraphs, the opening paragraphs from your article, uh, and we'll take it from there. So... The article reads the following. Documents seen by Open Democracy show the British Foreign Office has advised the Ukrainian Ministry of Economy on how to push through a new labor legislation, which experts warn could reduce Ukrainians' rights at work. Since September 2020, the UK has founded a project that is supporting the Ukrainian Ministry on transforming, and the word transforming is put in quotation marks here, uh, the country's labor laws. A 2021 communication plan prepared by an international development consultancy and marketed uh, and marked with the British Embassy in Kiev's logo recommends that the Ukrainian ministry should stress that liberating labor laws will bring positive results for Ukrainian workers. The communication strategy, which has been published by the European Federation of uh, Public Service Unions, uh, that is EPSU, includes an overview of media and leading commentaries on labor liberalization that suggests that the proposed reform is out of favor with the Ukrainian uh, public. So that's a, <laughs> that's a very interesting thing uh, because, you know, when you read the article later on, it's, uh, it, it actually shows that uh, the communication plan is uh, all about pretty much gaslighting the Ukrainian working class and the Ukrainian uh, public opinion that liberalization of the labor laws is going to bring about, you know, uh, great economic success and, and fantastic social progress and so on and so forth. So uh, before we dive into that, I just want uh, uh, I just want to ask you, Tom, how did you actually obtain this information? Is it a matter of public record that, people, that you know, journalists overlooked or were not interested in? Or is it something that you got from, from someone, from somewhere, from some institution? And, you know, if, if the latter is the case, then I don't want you to reveal your source uh, for us here. But perhaps you could just, you know, give us an idea. How did it go? Yeah, totally. Thanks. Uh, uh, thanks, Boyan. So there, there are two points. I mean, the first one is, yes, it's a matter of public record that uh, the UK Foreign Office is funding uh, project support for labor regulation transformation in Ukraine. That is publicly accessible information. You can find it on the Foreign Office's website. Uh, with regard to this uh, communication plan, uh, which is available in Ukrainian and in English, uh, well, that actually came via EPSU, uh, who, uh, which I'm, I'm not entirely sure of the provenance of the document, but uh, EPSU contacted me and said, would I like to take a look, uh, which I did, and we wrote an article about it. 
Sorry. So, Pablo, perhaps you could weigh in and uh, explain how did EPSU actually get around to this and how um, uh, how come you actually uh, figured it out? Uh, when did you spot it? Was it someone uh, that uh, suggested this idea to you? Well, there was a big um, tube uh, and the tube has uh, little spots and the uh, uh, thing that goes through the tube just leaked away and uh, we found it on the street and uh, we saw, you know, the share with some people. That's uh, all I can say <laughs> about this document. <laughs> but there's clearly here an issue of uh, lack of transparency. You cannot have a foreign government or any government or any in, um, international institution telling anyone else what to do outside the democratic structures. And we've seen that in the last, let's just cut short because <laughs> we can go back maybe to the pharaonic ages of secret diplomacy, but we've seen that a lot in the last decade or so. We, we saw it with uh, the European Union level uh, because there is a tendency in some Western countries to think that this is like a wonderful, successful democracy and, you know, in, you know, in some other countries it's not. But we saw it, like, for instance, with the Troika. The Troika was the European Commission. Uh, You're talking about the, the moment when they discussed with Greece and... and the, yeah, and uh, Greece and Spain and Italy and Portugal and, okay. and, and God knows who, how long. But the Troika, which was the European Commission, the European um, Central Bank and the International Monetary Fund, so three public international institutions under uh, disclosure of information laws in the different countries, for the EU ones in the whole of the EU, did not take minutes of the meetings. So the meetings that they that they had were secret. And of course, they would, that you could not have any leak of any document because it was actually kept by a couple of civil servants uh, in Brussels in their personal notes. But so just think about it. So the fact that we actually have a document by, a, a, in this case, the British government and two, another is already an improvement compared to the Troika. But, but, um, and, and we wanted, well, I mean, we think it's the job of journalists to highlight these things because we understand that this is a bit of a scandal. And uh, if there is someone who should uh, talk and think and discuss about labor reform in Ukraine, should be the Ukrainian civil society, Ukrainian citizens, and if it's about the labor code, surely Ukrainian uh, trade unions. So that's how we came about, really. Right. Okay. So, Tom, could you please go over briefly uh, over this strategy, communication strategy, which again is just manipulation mostly, right? Just to explain that uh, liberalizing everything. I mean, it's just so contradictory to everything that we have seen over the past 30 years in Eastern Europe, uh, you know, in terms of liberalization and, and of the labor market and so on and so forth. I mean, it contradicts the obvious. Okay? It's, it's against the reality, and, and, and every thinking person probably sees that. But despite this, the, the British Foreign Office decided that they're actually going to, to, yeah, to go with this with such a campaign. So please, tell us more about it. Yeah, so just to give a bit of background, the, uh, this specific document, as I said, is part of this uh, project uh, which is called Labour Regulation Transformation and is part of the UK Foreign Office's uh, kind of broader package for uh, military 
reform civil society economic support that goes to Ukraine. Uh, so as I said, that was publicly available information, although more or less there was only a very small paragraph about what that actually um, meant. The document itself, yeah, as you said, it's a communication strategy. And, and that was uh, basically prepared by an international development consultancy. Um, basically what happens with these projects is that they're kind of put out to tender and then you know, various companies can apply for them and then provide the services. Uh, and it was uh, originally announced uh, that project in September 2020, um, and that um, um, yeah, and that did come after basically the failure of an original uh, labour liberalisation attempt uh, under uh, the then Minister of Economy Timofey Milovanov, which happened in January, uh, January February 2020, um, and which essentially led to a, a fairly serious public confrontation between Ukrainian trade unions and uh, the Ukrainian government. Uh, the, I think it is fair to say there was a, you know, a, a serious breakdown um, of dialogue. I think, that's, I think that's fair to say. Uh, and in the end, the, that particular reform, which was a more or less this same liberalization that attempts that we see here, uh, plus um, uh, a direct threat to trade union property, um, which is considerable in Ukraine. Um, that, due to the confrontation, which included public protests uh, across the country, that specific attempt under then Minister Milovanov more or less went away. It was kicked down the road. And it's also important to note that you know, successive Ukrainian governments have sought to uh, implement quite serious labour reform over the past 20 years. So, in a sense, this is nothing new. Uh, this specific communication strategy uh, basically, it's trying to kind of solve this problem of why this reform is so unpopular. Um, it suggests that, for example, you know, there's a there's a big shift that the Ukrainian Ministry of Economy needs to make in terms of the way it communicates with the public. Uh, it suggests very directly that you know they need to make their messages you know simpler, more emotional. Those are direct quotes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Emotional and and more and and more kind or more. I, I will have to find the exact quote here. It says, "Ah, make its messages uh, make its messages easier and more emotional." I mean, this really sounds like gaslighting, doesn't it? Uh, I, well, I can't comment whether it's, it's gaslighting or not. Essentially, the Ministry of Economy uh, and the propo- and the proponents of, the, of this uh, reform argue that liberalisation will br- will bring. You know, more freedom, in effect, to Ukrainian workers, and ultimately more protection. So the background to this is quite important, which is obviously there is a significant uh, sector of uh, Ukrainian working people who are not employed offici- officially. They're in the shadow economy. They're in undeclared work. Uh, even official even officials call the number of something around three million people, um, which uh, you know is considerable. Uh, and obviously, because these people are in undeclared work. You know their rights and protections and uh, kind of social economic rights are, are not guaranteed and are hard to protect, as we know. So basically, what the proponents of the reform suggest is that um, you know if you simplify and if you reduce the levels of protection that Ukrainian workers uh, currently can enjoy—not necessarily does mean they enjoy, but can enjoy under the current legislation—you can make it easier for employers. You can make it easier for employers to uh, actually employ people. Right. Uh, well, uh, Pablo, to you now. You said, uh, I mean, I don't know whether it was you personally, but uh, EPSU, 
uh, Epsu uh, stated that the UK is effectively trying to undermine efforts of the International Labour Organization and the European Commission uh, and, it, uh, and, and it's financing propaganda, quote-unquote, to create a climate uh, against Ukrainian trade unions. Uh, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, I mean, um, just, just go to the previous point of, of Tom. Sure. <clears throat> so a high density of trade unions, according to that logic, no, not your logic, it's just what basically that uh, PowerPoint uh, hinted is bad because it would just not generate the right climate. So you just go to all international index for the most developed and uh, where the people are happiest and so on, you would have Iceland, Norway, Finland, Denmark and Sweden in the top 10 of all classifications. And those are the five countries that has a, have a higher trade union rate. So how would anyone in any context say that having a trade union rate would not allow you to do things is beyond anyone's understanding. Now, instead of saying that a country doesn't have a very well-developed, maybe because the employer side is like oligarchic and do not let things go in a democratic way, um, you see the contradiction. They're just putting the burden in the side, which this type, in this sense of like, okay, social partnership is based on employers and trade unions, and if there's many trade unions that have been dodgy, we don't like it. But what about if the employer side is, is dodgy? That's never um, uh, taking into account. So um, that, that's first point. And second point, uh, a link to that. The, the thing is, you do have in, international uh, structures. You might be very critical of them, okay? I'm just saying the ILO has shortcomings, independently of your position of that. But there are minimum standards. And Ukraine has not signed all the all the international labor, uh, the core uh, um, uh, agreements. So surely everyone should be pushing for that to happen. And it's quite funny because of, of the dates uh, that, were, that they were given. But when Ukraine and the United Kingdom signed in October 2020 the political uh, free trade and strategic partnership. Th there is actually a paragraph that says, a party shall not weaken or reduce the environmental or labor protection afforded by its law to encourage trade or investment by waiving uh, or otherwise derogating um, the, the existing laws. So they actually wrote just, what well, a few weeks before or after this, uh, the date of this document, exactly the contrary on a public document. Yeah. And again, when I go back to this issue of like this double standards uh, diplomacy of on the one hand you have the ILO and everyone says and promises ratification and, and even to do something about it. Um, the European Commission in their agreements in the strategic partner, um, um, a, a neighborhood policy towards the Ukraine. They want to foster and promote social dialogue and the UK in the free... And then you have the hard reality with the money is saying, just build this image that liberalization is wonderful. Precisely the moment where we see the highest uh, um, energy prices in, in Europe, Western, Eastern, everywhere, 20 years after liberalization. So it's, just, it's, it's 
I mean, car- cartoonists should be writing about this because it's such a good um, food for thought for just like having a laugh at politicians and, and, and how governments actually treat uh, their relation with the public. Because this agreement with, uh, between the Ukraine and the, and, the, and the UK or the EU and the Ukraine are under, uh, I wouldn't say democratic control, but under the spotlight of the public, of trade unions, NGOs, parliamentarians, and so on. And then you have these sentences, we, we shall not do this. But then the reality is that governments use the actual text of the agreement uh, in the toilet of each department, and then they actually, the, the, the real text comes through and is like, here it is, what you're going to say, and here's the money that we're going to put. By the way, public money, taxpayers' money, that is actually doing the contrary what the public uh, um, document we'll says. Like so, yeah, yeah. so it exactly. is. It's, yeah, it's it's it's, it's amusing. Upside. Amusing, if it wasn't uh, the worst. Right. Yeah. Well, it's all obviously all upside down. Tom, I saw you were uh, raising your hand, so please go ahead. Uh, thanks, boy. No, I think that's uh, a really interesting point that Pablo uh, brings up there with regard to the uh, UK-Ukraine strategic partnership agreement, um, which has this specific provision on. Uh, basically, the parties uh, will not seek to undermine or weaken both environmental and labour protections uh, in an effort to uh, attract or encourage. As if Ukraine investment. could could undermine the UK one, well, <laughs> like we're... both in equal terms. Of, sorry uh, I don't know. No, no. I mean, life is long. We'll see. Uh, so that also, there's a similar provision in the EU-Ukraine association agreement, um, which uh, I do. I do think is important. I mean, I would say that. Um, just to give uh, the floor to um, the proponents of these reforms, you know what they would argue is that basically by bringing people into any form of officially declared work, uh, you are in fact offering them some kind of uh, rights and protections. That this is the argument um, that's being made, um, and specifically that you know the current labour laws are a inflexible um, and b are actually unworkable in the current environment, and that you really, um, you know, the levels of protections in effect are not, are kind of anachronistic. They're not of their time because the Labour Code uh, originally dates from 1971, i.e. the Soviet Union, although has been, uh, in fact, amended many, many, many times since since then. So that's, so th- I guess just to, to kind of sum up that point, on the one hand, you have proponents of reform who say that by liberalising, you in fact protect workers, i.e. they will be in some kind of officially declared employment, uh, the conditions, uh, pay, etc to be determined by individual contracts between employees and employers. And on the other hand, you have trade unions uh, in Ukraine which say, well, uh, you know, we're not so sure that's actually going to protect people. And that the problem of undeclared work, which is significant in Ukraine, does not necessarily lie. The, the reason why there are so many people in undeclared work is not because of labor law. It's, of because, of, it's because of the entire business uh, and, judi- and specifically judicial environment, um, i.e., you have a very complicated tax system. You have, uh, let's try to think of a diplomatic term, which is appropriate. You have courts which uh, there are questions about the way they function. Let's put it like that. Uh, and you also have infrastructure and, and kind of other business issues that all create, basically that create on the employer side, you know, the motivation to not declare your production, not declare uh, what you're up to. And that includes employees. Right. Well, I think that's a very good point because uh, this this is the story actually throughout Eastern Europe, and perhaps we this is a good moment to put uh, to put 
this issue that we're discussing about right now into a, uh, a wider context. Uh, because, you know, I'm from Eastern Europe. I'm originally from Bulgaria. Now I live in Poland and uh, I know all the countries of that region and I have been to Ukraine quite a few times. And you're totally right. I just want to agree that, look, we can speculate until the cows come home about whether the labor code is, uh, you know, up to date. Okay, whether this should be amended or that should be amended. Obviously, if it was if it's a document written 40 years ago, then some amendments are necessary. But, you know. We also know, and, and let's be honest about it, and, and you know, Ukraine is an, in, is an extremely corrupt country, okay? And this is one of the major problems here because, uh, you know, the, the business model, sure, now the business model there is obviously, uh, you know, reflecting that. So when there is a kind of, uh, you know, systemic premise to uh, you know, to do things in a corrupt manner to uh, you know to avoid any legal regulations, and if uh, and if you have an impoverished uh, population vis-a-vis, then obviously this is gonna uh, end up in some kind of pathological conglomeration, which uh, seems to be the case uh, in, in in Ukraine. And obviously, you know, I, I agree 100% that uh, we need to uh, to make sure that the legal regulations regarding the labor uh, market are up to date and that they are, you know, uh, that they are rational, uh, that uh, they they are, uh, you, you know, um, uh, like according to the challenges that are uh, presented by by reality, that they. Uh, <clears throat> they are formatted properly, but you know I just can't quite see how the la- the question of the labor code or, or the labor law in in Ukraine is the is the main one which produces uh, you know poverty and uh, you know workers not being paid, not being employed properly, being uh, you know uh, exploited and so on and so forth. That's why I kind of understand uh, the resistance of the unions, despite the fact that you know the the labor laws in in Ukraine might be outdated. I understand their their resistance because you know we've seen it all over the place. Okay, from Poland, from the Baltics to Greece. Okay, from like all over the region, everybody has told us exactly the same thing over the last 30 years. Everything's going to be okay. You know, now it's going to be just uh, uh, you and the employer and, you know, as flexible as you like. It's going to make you work less and it's going to make you earn more and everybody's going to be happy. And we're going to make the taxation system very simple. In effect, you know, <laughs> the uh, the owners pay less taxes than those that are, uh, you know, working for the owners of factories, services, and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, Pablo, please go ahead. I saw you were raising your hand, and I think you, I'm, I'm thinking you might also want to uh, comment on. No, no, I mean, also see, see Tom's later on uh, comment, but there, there is, as, as you were saying, I think it's correct that everyone looks around and say, okay, look what happened in Romania, labor code reform, and it undermined the capacity of, well, of interacting by trade unions. So with the excuse that we need a reform, which you probably could do with, that as you were saying is like, yes, but there are reforms and reforms. I always remember the old trade union leader of the Spanish Confederation. uh, It's like, if you want to reform your jacket and then basically you cut the sleeves, you're not going to call that reform. You're going to call it counter reform. 
Um, so if you have loose or gain weight, you basically sew the right parts of the jacket, not just come with two scissors and then you don't have sleeves, which is how things are being applied. And um, what is needed really is, is this, as they say in French, don't know. So, okay, let's reform the tax code. So we have a more progressive and just tax system. So people actually start believing in the state. Look, I come from a country where when I was very a kid, very young kid, we were coming out from a dictatorship. And there was one thing that the government tried to do is to build the trust of people in the state, in the government. Because for 40 years, there was just how to avoid it in a very, you know, how to avoid repression on the one hand, but also, you know, how to not to pay taxes, how to how to just contain the state. And there was this sense of also those that have in society have to, I mean, there's a very famous singer that actually ended up almost going to jail for not paying taxes. Um, Lola Flores, for the, uh, for the audience to know. But there was a big attempt of saying the tax office is everyone. Everyone should be and trying to fight corruption. So you need to do that first. Then you can sit down with the union and say, okay, well, we need to change things around with employers. But you just cannot do that once and twice and three times and four times. And then a leaked document in Romania about the American Chamber of, of Commerce saying just undermine the thing. And then another uh, reform. And, and, and then it's just like you see around and it's like, no, 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 no. No, no, this is a defensive battle. We might have shortcomings, yes. But, I mean, look who's proposing the reforms. And I think there is a very honest reaction um, that in some even some Ukrainian trade unions, there was a talk about we need to change, we need to regenerate. I see that in the previous attempt when there were mobilizations and they were using those mobilizations also to change the nature of the trade union. They were looking at like, we need more members, we need the members being more active and so on, which is a right thing to do. But of course, when you see a leaked document secret, um, by the UK foreign uh, office, by this UK foreign government, not by any, like they say, well, I want there is something to stop. And my question to Tom, and I'll, I'll, you know, you have to comment to, to react, is like, has there been any reactions in Ukraine, as in like in the political sphere? Because, uh, you know, there's been so many resignations in the last decade or so over so many scandals that probably maybe that didn't pass a bit under the radar, but has there been something? No, it's a good question. Um, there has been a reaction. I mean, it's um, just on, I mean, it's not actually related, but just on resignations, actually, there was a new Minister of Economy uh, appointed just around the time that we published um, the article. So, um, slightly uh, interesting time, a change of guard um, at the top of the Ministry of Economy. Uh, coincidentally, someone, uh, someone who had been actually a deputy of uh Minister Milovanov, who attempted the quite considerable, I would say, effort uh, to reform uh, the Ukrainian Labour Code uh, at the start of 2020. Uh, but in terms of the broader political uh, reaction, uh, you know, there, there is interest in the Ukrainian Parliament for uh, all of its problems uh, in these issues. Uh, and actually, there is a representative of the Federation of Trade Unions of Ukraine uh, in Parliament, uh, member of the Bakhtivshina Party, uh, which is headed by Yulia Tymoshenko. Uh, and they actually had a, a meeting uh, with a representative of the uh, British Embassy in Kiev uh, regarding this matter. 
Um, and I think there is, you know, one of the kind of takeaways uh, that came out of the press release that was published afterwards was that, you know, uh, there seems to be some, you know, more support from the embassy side for uh, dialogue between trade union partners and the government and business uh, over labor code reform. We will see what happens as a result of that. Obviously, there are also ongoing negotiations on that front. Um, and more broadly, there has been some media pickup uh, on the story. Um, uh, there has been less media pickup in the in the kind of mainstream media. It has been more on the YouTube channel side. Um, exactly. That's something I wanted to ask about whether it was reflected in the media because uh, there, you know, among many other problems, Ukraine also struggles with. Uh, you know, problems with censorship, let's call it that way. So uh, it's, uh, it's also, um, it's also, it would also be interesting whether this story was, you know, circulated in the mainstream or whether exactly, as you said, like only on those alternative well, channels, like uh, or platforms like YouTube or, or, or whatever. But, uh, you know, have you, have you had any, perhaps a, a, a Ukrainian journalist uh, approaching you or, or maybe you, Pablo, as EPSU, uh, you know, trying to figure out a little more about it to maybe put a story together? Uh, we, ha I haven't been approached um, so far. As I said, there have been a couple of talk shows, which have been quite interesting to watch uh, in Ukrainian. Uh, but I think, um, I mean, just more broadly, which I think to an extent answers the question. Um, you know, I, one of the reasons I wrote this story is that I, I do think there has to be oversight of um, what British uh, kind of development projects are up to. Um, around the world. I, I do think on the whole there is more conversation, more debate about the role of um, development money and development projects that are run by the UK. This is this is one of them inside the UK. But in terms of you know Ukraine's reform efforts, you know, which have been considerable, you know, um, since 2014, I I I believe that there should be, you know, should we say more conversation about the role of uh, kind of Western development agencies uh, okay. and in the can country. We, right, because we're approaching the end of our program, but I, I would like us to uh, talk a little bit if uh, about, well, we know that there is not so, um, that, that there wasn't really any significant re uh, reaction on the part of the Ukrainian establishment, so to say. There wasn't really uh, much of a reaction on the part of the media syndicate in, in Ukraine. Uh, but let's talk about the trade unions, because you said that, uh, uh, you know, The unions are still active. I mean, they possess a lot of property. They are mass organizations uh, in Ukraine. And despite all the problems that, uh, I don't know, the Soviet legacy, let's say, created for them in a sense that nothing was reformed and brought up to date or very little was reformed and brought up to date. But th th there's got to be a reaction on that, uh, you know, on the part of the trade unions. And I even see that in your article. Uh, there's this uh, Pavlo Prudnikov uh Ukraine's Nuclear Power and Industry Workers Union, who said, uh, and it's a quote from the article, and it's a quote from him being quoted in the article, we defeated the attempt at liberalization. It was an inactive, it was an active struggle, not just in the streets, but in the media too. And it's obviously referring to a past protest, but uh, I think, you know, it's, it's very important because the unions now, when <laughs> no one reports or no one's willing to actively report it in the media and the politicians are not taking it up, then the unions are on their own. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder uh, whether we could, you know, just speculate a little bit on how is this going to go and what this reaction is already and how it would unfold in terms of protests, maybe, or, or whatever other actions in, uh, in the future. Yeah, please go ahead, uh, Tom. No, I think that's a good question. I mean, Pavel Prudnikov there you know, was referring specifically to the 2020 uh, liberalization, anti-liberalization protests, which were significant. Um, there was a protest um, against the, these current attempts 
uh, in October um, in Kiev. Uh, so, you know, I think on the one hand, you know, you have this attempt at negotiations with regard to labor code reform, and on the other hand, yes, you also have protests. Um, I think it's fair to say, or reasonable to assume that uh, so far this issue hasn't come to a head. I think it's also interesting to note that during the last the kind of big confrontation between trade unions, prote protesters, and the Ukrainian government over this issue in January, February 2020, uh, it's interesting to note that the media, to an extent, you know, did cover uh, these protests and did, you know, there was some sympathy uh, for these uh, for these issues, uh, which I think is striking, um, and I think is a big question about how they'll cover, you know this kind of potential next round of, of confrontation. Um, at the end of the day, I think it's also about numbers. I think it's about numbers of people who are ready to uh, mobilize, essentially. I think that's what attracted Ukrainian media in January, February 2020. You know, there was this significant mobilization. So far, we haven't seen, this, seen that kind of attempt over this current uh, reform attempt. And, uh, you know, it's all, I suspect it's all about triggers. And there were some considerable triggers for protest in January, February 2020. So far, we haven't seen them. Uh, with this current reform. Right, Pablo. So well, this pandemic is doesn't help mobilization, but it is true that, uh, was it 2020? I mean, it's kind of a gap in my understanding of time with the pandemic. But there, wa there was, I remember I remember the time, uh, meetings here in Brussels also, where, where they came uh, to meet MEPs and so on, that you could see, it's a bit of a term that I use, and, uh, how scientific is, I don't know, but there were organic mobilizations. So actually, like normal people, normal members, uh, not just the general secretaries, were involved in something that went against with this vision of everyone in Ukraine is in favor of liberalization. Well, no, probably everyone in Ukraine is, is for, or many, many people, for a higher minimum wage, for better living standards, for better housing, for a number of things that this protest kind of galvanized. And uh, yeah, of course, then when you have like mass movement, the press basically has to show it. Um, and, they, you know, that's quite probably this document was not public either. Let's remember... Um, is it not like an official statement by the British Foreign Office saying we're going to have a project on this? Uh, it's, it's a PowerPoint, it's done in, in a different way. So I think that's a bit cheeky uh, from that part. And of course, the, the issue is that doing this after, like two years after those mobilizations, um, while the pandemic is still raging, is is a bit, I don't know, adding insult to injury as far as I'm concerned. Right, okay, and for the very end, uh, Tom, I want to ask you, because, right, in, in Ukraine, no, not so much reaction on the part of the media, but perhaps in, in the UK, perhaps someone someone looked, someone decided that it, it's worth, uh, you know, their attention. And, and I think it's a good question about the UK. Um I believe that this isn't the end of this story. I think there's going to be more to report. And I think that there will be some more interest at the political level, potentially from uh, you know, people you know, people in Parliament, more on the kind of socialist end of, mm -hmm. of, the, uh, of the political wing, political spectrum. Um, so I think there will be, I will think there will be some interest. Um, but I also think it's, it's a strange story. You know, it's, it's a strange story for you know, UK readers who are not really following these kinds of issues, you know, It, it, um, it's just part of the situation where, 
you know, the media diet is you know, very news focused and there's not that much space for these kinds of deeper issues. And I think, you know, when people read about Ukraine, unfortunately, um, there are less stories about, there are less stories about labor than I'd like to see. Oh yeah. Uh, on the, on the yeah. Right. Anyway, uh, so on that note, we end today's uh, edition of EPSU Podcast. Uh, thank you, Tom, and thank you, Pablo, for being with us. Thank, thank you for you. sharing all your insights with uh, our audience. We'll be with you. Uh, we'll be back shortly. Uh, meanwhile, stay healthy, keep fighting, and uh, we'll see each other soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. a European Public Service Union podcast. This podcast episode was recorded prior to the outbreak of the war in Ukraine.